want you to watch a video, some of you have seen it before, of Brennan Manning, and then I want to talk to you for a few minutes. In the 48 years since I was first ambushed by Jesus, in a little chapel in the Allegheny Mountains of Western Pennsylvania, and in literally the thousands of hours of prayer, meditation, silence, and solitude over those years, I am now utterly convinced that on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus is going to ask each of us one question, and only one question. Did you believe that I loved you? That I desired you? That I waited for you day after day? That I longed to hear the sound of your voice? The real believers there will answer, yes, Jesus. I believe in your love and I tried to shape my life as a response to it. But many of us who are so faithful in our ministry, in our practice, in our church going, are going to have to reply, <clears throat> well, frankly, no, sir. I mean, I never really believed it. I mean, I heard a wonderful, a lot of wonderful sermons and teachings about it. In fact, I gave quite a few myself. But I always thought that was just a way of speaking, a kindly lie, some Christian's pious pat on the back to cheer me on. And there's the difference between the real believers and the nominal Christians that abound in our churches across the land. No one can measure like a believer the depth and the intensity of God's love, but at the same time, no one can measure like a believer the effectiveness of our gloom, pessimism, low self-esteem, self-hatred, and despair that block God's way to us. Do you see why it is so important to lay hold of this basic truth of our faith? Because you're only going to be as big as your own concept of God. Remember the famous line of the French philosopher, Blaise Pascal? God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. We often make God in our own image, and he wants us to be as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, legalistic, judgmental, unforgiving, unloving as we are. In the past couple of three years, I have preached the gospel to the financial community in Wall Street, New York City, the airmen and women of the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, a thousand physicians in Nairobi. I've been in churches in Bangor, Maine, Miami, Chicago, St. Louis, Seattle, San Diego, and honest, the God of so many Christians I meet is a God who is too small for me because he is not the God of the Word. He is not the God revealed by and in Jesus Christ who this moment comes right to your seat and says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, and degraded love that has darkened your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship, and my word is this, I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are and not as you should be, because you're never going to be as you should be. That's a gentleman by the name of Brennan Manning who uh, passed away this last year, gone to be with the Lord, and uh, a man who I love dearly. If it helps... Some of you, Brennan, Brennan was one of the key instruments across the world for people's lives being transformed by the love of God. Uh, and yet Brennan struffled, so struggled with alcoholism all his life. 
Now, for some, you might feel that is incompatible with his revelation. But the truth is, it's totally compatible with his revelation because that helped him to understand that we do not earn God's love. We do not deserve God's love. We do not achieve a place where God's love changes our lives. But God acts unilaterally on our behalf and we receive that love and that's what makes the difference. So I want to talk to you just for a few minutes about a message that is, um, is condensed down. If you'd like to hear a fuller version of the message, please uh, feel free to go online. Um, you, you can Google it. It's Abundant Life Church Bellingham. It will come up if you put Abundant Life Church Bellingham. Um, and uh, you'll be able to listen to a fuller version of this message that they titled, Shut Up, Sit Down and Listen. So on our YouTube as well, uh, Danny's already got it down there, and when our new website goes uh, live on the 14th of next month, it will, it will also be on there. Of this month? Oh, it's July, isn't it? No, it's not July yet, is it? So this is a condensed version, but uh, at the core of this is something very important that I've, I've said some things about, but I want to hammer it home so hard that you never forget it. Because as Brennan said, unless we get this foundational issue, our God becomes a reflection of all our own pettinesses and weaknesses, and we never learn what it is to live in the love of God, and then we never know what it is to truly express the love of God free of our own agendas, only the agenda of people experiencing the God who loves them and uh, cares for them. I thought it was interesting before that that the guys sung the song that's from the Broadway musical Rent. Rent is about a lot of young people, uh, most of whom were locked into um, a gay, lesbian lifestyle. Um, And all the stuff that goes in that in the life, the pain, the sorrows, the difficulty... And uh, the love that is needed for us to reach all kinds of people in our world, for people to know that they are loved. So often I feel that what has not always been said but has emanated from us in the church has been we can't love you because you're like that. Um, And that's not God, is it? So I want to talk to you um, about what is the point of the gospel. Um, in, in understanding this, I'm driven by something summarized beautifully by the late, great Brennan Manning, who we listened to at the beginning, who said these words, we try to dim the blinding brightness of its meaning because the gospel seems too good to be true. Um, I have bought into a too good to be true gospel. <clears throat> if it does not stretch your understanding of the gospel, your human ability to conceive its goodness, then you're probably not understanding the the gospel that came from this wonderful man, Jesus. It it, it staggered the people who heard him so much that they they felt such a deep conflict that their answer was, we have to kill this man, we can't have this man rule over us, we can't let his voice be the dominant voice. And the reason being because it was the too good to be true gospel. Which, which undermined their centuries-long perceptions of what they thought God was requiring of them. And um, our perceptions of what God is requiring of us 
can so often differ to what God is actually requiring of us. We, we can misrepresent what God does with us to be what God wants from us. There's a wonderful, uh, wonderful couple of verses in the book of Exodus, chapter 6. Um, when, when God was having an encounter with people who got themselves into a mess, right? They're called the children of Israel, and the mess was that they'd been for 400 years uh, slaves in Egypt when they shouldn't have been. A lot of that was because they stayed in a place longer than they should have done, which again is another story, and turned deliverance into despair. And so often we can do that if we're not fresh with what God is doing in our world today, then we turn deliverance into despair, right? We turn church into conformity. We turn relationship into ritual. Um, we make it religion. And they stayed too long in a place. You know, you, hopefully there's no danger of you ever doing that here at The Rock. I hope so. Um, but God had to step in and help them. And he spoke through a guy called Moses, who was just a preacher like me, really, touched by God, obedient to God. And uh, he told them what are called the four I wills. What God said, I will visit you, I'll bring you up, I'll set you free, I'll take you into a land. The interesting thing is that they are the four I wills, they're not the four you musts. The sad thing is we start with four I wills and then we get hold of that religiously and they turn into four you musts. And don't look at me in that tone of voice because you know it's true, okay? So, so it's not always said to us, but the inference we have, because we've created God in our own image, because we've superimposed over God who we think he is rather than who he is, I wills turn into you musts. And then we find ourselves in what should be the place of freedom, being in a place of bondage. And the way we justify that then is by getting a superior spirit, just like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, and then we justify our position by condemning others. I want all those things to be undermined and taken away because they're not the true gospel. They are not the point of the gospel. We try to dim the blinding brightness of its meaning because the gospel seems too good to be true. Um, I've also mentioned, which I think is, is important to mention, that the term Christian is only, only occurs three times in the whole of the Bible. Um, its usage is very interesting because it's first mentioned um, from comments that were made in a city called Antioch where the, the early apostles went there to, to share the good news of Jesus and the, the people of Antioch didn't really know what to call them so they finished up calling them Christians, obviously, because their message was about Christ. Now, uh, what's interesting is that the, the, the people in Antioch, I don't know if they were Antiochans, <laughs> whatever they were, um, actually were using it as a derogatory term. There wasn't, they weren't commending these people, oh, you amazing Christians. They were actually opposed to them and just trying to find a label to put on them. Now, my point is this, that labels are dangerous, because once you label something, you condemn that thing to being what you perceive the label means that they should be. Now, Christian's a good term. It's an honest term because they were Christians, followers of Christ. But it seems to me, if you study history, that from the moment a label was stuck on that said Christian, 
uh, it, it marked a slide into all kinds of difficulties that occurred because of institutionalization. So we get denominationalization. All that stuff occurs because we've now taken the label and we're trying to be the label. Uh, I love the fact that those early followers of Jesus were just known as people of the way. It's a wonderful title. Um, and uh, I don't know whether it would work now because, you know, sometimes you've got to have a name. I appreciate that. But people of the way suggested that they were not trying to build another religion. They were not, they were not trying to build a religion around Jesus. What they were trying to do was live a way that Jesus had taught them to live and, and call people to the way. Saying, come, come, and, come and join, come and follow us. Just like Jesus said to those first disciples, follow me and I'll make you. And so they began to live life not towards a destination, but in a direction. So the whole context of the point of the gospel was to set a direction in our lives. Now here's what happens. When, when we miss the point, when we dim the bright, shining brightness of its glory, when we label it and institutionalize it, the danger is that then we have to put it within parameters that we can contain. So therefore, we have to make it about a destination because we can box it in, right? So it starts at birth, it finishes at death. Or it starts when you're born and it finishes here. Or we have hell on one side and heaven on the other side. Can you see what, what happens when we do that? We're trying to make destinations because we find it easier to cope with something that has destinations. But here's the problem, once you set those destinations in, it's like building walls that say, we understand everything within the walls and these are the walls and therefore this is what it's all about. So, now Christianity becomes all about heaven and hell with Jesus in the middle. Like that was all God could dream up that there's heaven and hell and somehow I better send Jesus to get them to the right place. Um, I would suggest to you that, that the point of the gospel was not destinations. Now, do I believe in heaven? Yes, I do. Um, do I believe that, that um, we don't need to fear death? That, that we have been given a grace that will take us beyond the grave, that will cause us to live forever uh, in the kingdom of God that goes on forever and ever? Yes, I do. I believe that. Do I believe there is a hell? Yes. Not maybe in the way that some of you believe in hell, but I believe in an existence of an alternative for those who decide they don't want to be in heaven rather than those who decide they don't want to be in hell, which again is another conversation. I believe in those things, but I don't believe that's the point of the gospel. I don't believe that's the point Jesus was making. In fact, if you look at Jesus' personal message, you will see that he taught very little about destination and lots about direction. He talked very little about where the kingdom of God is and lots about what the kingdom of God is like. Do you remember that? The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of God is like. Why was he doing that? Because he was saying, I want you to live, first of all, just because Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. And I want you to live in a direction. Now, how many of you know, if you live in a direction, whatever is the ultimate of that direction, you will arrive. It's inevitable. You are going to arrive at the place that the direction you take finishes up. So I'm actually not too worried about the destination. 
because if I catch the direction, if I go the direction, it will ultimately deliver me to the destination, whatever that destination may be. Does that make sense? So, so when we look at this, we have to realize that, that there was a direction in which they were living rather than a destination to which they were heading. And my, my hope is to continually, in the opportunities I have, to set your life in a direction, um, which is really what Brennan was talking about. It sets us in a direction. That direction that we go on will determine for us our understanding of God, our understanding of who he is, what he came to do, our understanding of time, eternity, ourselves, life, sin, righteousness. But they all start to look a little different. So I just want to cut you into a couple of verses just to to give you some insight on this. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 13 in the New Testament... The verse says this, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Now, how many of you know he's speaking allegorically here, okay? He's not just talking to babies drinking mother's milk. He's using it as a picture to say, we associate milk drinking with being a an immature child, you're a baby, you, 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 you're not just immature, you're pre-immature, okay? You haven't even had a chance to show what it is that you don't know yet, because you're just a baby. Um, if Paul wrote Hebrews, not sure, but whoever wrote it, had this insight that said that most of us, even in our struggle to get a grasp on spirituality and God and Jesus and life, Actually, never get past the infant stage. Never get past the living on milk stage. In fact, he's saying, spiritually speaking, most of you are still like Phoebe. Right? Now, I find that quite staggering and also quite frightening. Now, he, he's going to verify why he thinks that and why he believes that. But um, I, I would propose to you, from, from my own experience, that... Um, Most of the time when we hit difficulty, regardless of our claims of relationship with God, of of being born again, of being Christian, however you would wish to phrase it, most of our behavior when we hit difficulty is totally childish. Uh, You know, throwing your dummy out of the pram. Well, if that's how I'm going to be treated, I'm not going there anymore. That's, That's, how many of you know that's what we did in the school playground? I'm not playing. You know, you're his friend, you're not my friend. That's what we did in the school playground. Sadly, and and we all have to be aware of this, me included, um, there is something innate in humanity that, that, that wants us never to grow up as humanity touched by the grace of God and living in the love that came to us through Christ. And so there is always a struggle unless... You go down the track, which Chris talked about last week, that you give lots of sugar. How many of you know the way to a child's heart? <laughs> he never was with Joel, which is fascinating. He was always savory with Joel. So you, savory savior, say, oh, I love it. <laughs> How many of you know we carry sweets to give to kids? Why do we carry sweets? Because they have a sugar craving and we know that 
if we give them some sugar, some sweetness. Now, one would have to question, therefore, in our development of the Christian faith and our message, whether, like Chris said last week, we have, we have gone for the sweet mentality because we know that most people or kids, that's what they're going to prefer. Um, how many of you know your taste radically changes as you get older? I used to hate sour stuff. Uh, there's lots of stuff I used to hate that now I love, and I, I, I struggle to eat chocolate and sweets. If I have chocolate, I have dark chocolate. You know a person's old when they want dark chocolate instead of... That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the key test, okay? So some of you are still into milk chocolate. You're not as old as you think you are, okay? Um, What's interesting is, what's my favorite dark chocolate? Right. I, I, buy, I buy dark chocolate that has a hint of sea salt, which is amazing. You ought to try it. Chocolate with sea salt in it is just, it is, if there is a heaven, whatever heaven is, that's heaven, it's definitely, that's the chocolate of heaven. What? Like the donut burger. Heaven will have donut burgers and chocolate with salt in. Um, and I had a point in telling you this somewhere along the track, which I've no clue. Oh, I know, we were talking about sweetness, weren't we? And, and salt, that it is true that, that, as Chris brought out last week, which is fascinating, that salt is used in cooking to enhance the flavor, to bring out the, the complexity of the flavors. And so Chris said last week that we're going to see what salt is from what Jesus said by how we perceive what is this thing called the gospel? And I, I just want us to grow up. So anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, listen, he's going to define why he's not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Now this is key. I want you to hear that. And not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Now I don't know about you, but um, I had somewhere in my psyche... And in my thinking, and therefore that filtered through to my, my ministry for most of my life, the idea that, that the understanding of the gospel was to be acquainted with the teaching about unrighteousness. So that the point of the gospel was to point out your sin. Right? That was the primary thing, to point out how bad you were, how you have failed, how I have failed, to point out my sin, that the whole thing should be focused on my understanding of unrighteousness. But Paul says that's the problem right there with the distortion of the point of the gospel, that we're still living on milk, we're still infants when we're not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. I then discovered that actually the Bible is a book teaching us about righteousness, not about unrighteousness. Now, we haven't got all the time in the world to do this, but I'm going to look at two things before we close. Romans 1 verse 17, which you all know is my second favorite verse. It runs a very close second to my first favorite verse, but this is my second favorite verse. <clears throat> Romans 1.17 says, For in the gospel, okay, what's the point of the gospel? In the gospel, the good news, a righteousness from God is revealed. So we have this fascinating concept that we want to dim the blinding brightness of because it seems too ridiculous to be true 
that righteousness, right standing with God, is a revelation, right? Once you say, in the gospel, a righteousness is revealed, it's not a righteousness is earned, it's not a righteousness is attained, it's not that you start somewhere and work your way towards it and then suddenly you are when you weren't before. It says, in the gospel, a righteousness is revealed. So righteousness is a revelation. The point of the gospel is to give the world the revelation of righteousness, right? That's why we can sing songs like we did from Rent, because we're coming with a revelation of righteousness. We start from a place not of the unrighteous trying to become righteous, but the righteous not needing to be unrighteous anymore, because your righteousness does not depend upon your behavior. A righteousness is revealed. If we turned all the lights off in here and made it so dark that you couldn't see me, and then we flipped the lights on, you would see me. That's a revelation. I would be revealed. All of me would be here. You could see all of me because I would be revealed when the lights come on. The truth is Jesus said, I am the light of the world who lights every man who comes into the world. What is the light that he brings on? The light that comes on that reveals a righteousness, okay? A righteousness that is revealed. Now, we've got to take this a few steps to show how that applies to us. In the gospel, a righteousness is revealed that is by faith from first to last. Remember Brennan Manning's question, do you believe that I loved you, that I longed for you? that I waited for you, that I stood knocking at the door. Do you believe that? In other words, it's the faith to receive the revelation and not fight the revelation, which is a righteousness that is revealed to you. And, and it says that it is by faith from first to last. It's all by faith. And the righteous live by that faith. So the central issue of the gospel is my first point. The central issue of the gospel is not unrighteousness. Okay? I want you to get this. It's not unrighteousness. That is not our job. I find it fascinating because of the limit of the label. Oh, I'm a Christian now, so what? Well, that must mean this, and let's have it, and it's got to mean that. So, so we start to live this thing that we've now defined by our own need to put it within boxed lines. And as we begin to define that, the problem is that we then conclude that the central issue of the gospel must be about unrighteousness. Now, here's the conflict. The Bible says, and if the Bible is going to be the framework of our understanding and belief, the Bible calls the devil, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, who accuses them day and night before the Lord, okay? So, so if you want to read that, Revelations chapter 12, he's the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before God, Day and night, okay? So, if that's what the devil does, why do you think God would then want to piggyback on the devil to do the same thing that he does, which is to accuse in the hope of bringing condemnation and judgment to separate you from life? Why the heck and how on earth 
is it that the church has locked onto that and is doing the devil's work for him by saying, here's the point. I'm going to accuse you of all your sins. I'm going to accuse you of your wrongdoing. I'm going to point out your faults. I'm going to highlight your, your failures. Because if we don't understand the gospel of righteousness, that's actually what, what we do in the church. And it's what we feel we have to do as believers. And it's what I've done for many years. So I want to take you to John 16 and verse 8. To something that Jesus said while he was teaching the people. Okay, John 16 verse 8. I'm going to read this from the New King James Version. Jesus here was talking to the crowd about the Holy Spirit. Um, if, if you're uninitiated in church life, it's funny how I always find, I've found this fascinating wanting to punch people. Forgive me, Jesus. Um, that people will read horoscopes, it's true, it's true, it's true. And then you talk about the Holy Spirit and say, oh, that's nonsense. How can that be? That's freaky. That's, how's that freaky? And reading Russell Grant's horoscope isn't. See what I, you know, so, I mean, let's have a fair playing field here. The Holy Spirit, if we were to talk about him, is he is part of God. He is God and he's part of God. He's that part of God that's, that's kind of the ooh, little kind of God. Now, if you doubt that, how many times have you ever walked into a room and felt something? What is that? How many of you know, if a couple have been rowing and you've been invited round, you haven't got two inches over the threshold of the door before you know they've been rowing? How many of you have had that experience? You, you just, how do you know that? Then now, oh, it's lovely to see you come in. We've been longing for this day. Nothing's happened to indicate to you a problem, but you feel it, don't you? That's because spirit is real. And when we feel things like that, it's real. So, so it's quite legitimate for God to talk about the Holy Spirit, the spirit part of God. The part of God that doesn't have a physical essence, but has a very real presence, okay? So Jesus said, okay, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, but the Father's there, I'm here, but the Holy Spirit's like all over the place, okay? Because he's spirit, okay? He's not confined to a body, and Jesus, talking about the Holy Spirit, says when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will, he's going to work on feelings, okay? He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So, so three things the Holy Spirit, when he comes, is going to do. He's going to convict. Now, um, conviction was, a, was a, a scary, helpful word to me when I was growing up. It was helpful because I knew I was supposed to do something if I felt conviction. I was taught, you know, if I felt you're under conviction of the Holy Ghost, lad, right? Any of you had that? You're under conviction. Which, in essence, there's some truth to that, but, but here's, here's the point of that. Conviction was always about how unrighteous you were. It was always about the things you'd done wrong, Right? So, so when we talked about being convicted by the Holy Spirit, it was always about the wrong things that we've done. Is that correct? It was always about, oh, he's convicting you. And this was the scripture we used. He'll convict the world of sin 
of righteousness and of judgment. So that statement suggested to me, and it probably does to you tonight, uh, a certain thing, which is we're going to be convicted of sin and unrighteousness and judgment, because it all goes together. Sin is unrighteousness and judgment's coming. What fascinates me is having held that view for many years in my life, And having been taught that directly and indirectly, I came to a revelation that that's actually not what it says at all. It says he will convict the world of sin of what? Of what? Righteousness and judgment, okay? So, now, here's the problem, okay? We've got our badge on. Christian now, the Antiochans said. Christian, okay, so... So we better, we better know what we're on with here. So instead of being in a direction, people of the way, now we've got to be people with destination. So we've got to, we've got to form everything. So now what we're going to do is bring it all together and we're going we're gonna, to, because we're together, we have to make some rules. And then because we make some rules, we have to have a way of enforcing the rules. And then if we're going to enforce the rules, we have to have people to police the rules. Uh, and that's how denominations were birthed, Right? Because that's what we do on a denominational level. We state the rules, we enforce the rules, we police the rules, okay? So, so here now we've got this problem, okay? We've now, we've got our badge, we're all, we're all on. And so, and so where that transfers now is here we are in uh, 1984 and we're doing a translation of the Bible called the New International Version, which I use most of the time, okay? I like it, except for a few points within it. Um, I use mostly the New International Version and the New King James Version of the Bible, what I mostly use to think and, and read and study. But, but this verse is a disaster in the New International Version because they translated it like this. When he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of guilt. What? How did guilt suddenly come in here? Well, because if you're convicted, you're guilty. Okay. But of what? In regards to, okay, so they're now going to tell us what we're convicted and guilty of. In regards to sin, right? Um. Because men do not believe on me, in regards to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So, because the sentiment driving the translation of this portion was driven by the gospel revealing unrighteousness, we then have to write it in a way that relays that, and then you and I accept that, and then that's what we begin to live. So we live from a place of feeling what God came to do was point out our unrighteousness. So the point is here that we read the word righteousness but subconsciously hear the word unrighteousness because of the way that we think. And the text actually means the exact opposite. If you read an NIV, he will convict the world of guilt in regards to and not anywhere in the Greek text. You cannot find them. Those words have been added in to support the view of the gospel that the point of the gospel is dealing with the unrighteousness of humanity. Okay. So... It means the exact opposite. What does it say? 
When he has come, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment in regard to sin because they do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. In regard to judgment, because the prince of this world is judged or now stands condemned. Let's just explain that a little minute. First of all, you have to get the fulcrum, the center. What does all this hinge on? It hinges on a revelation of righteousness. He will convict the world. Now, who's he going to convict? That's what it says, right? He will convict. Who's the world? Does that... Bring into the equation more people than you and I in here tonight. Okay? Does it bring into the equation more people than belong to all the churches in York? Does it bring into the equation all the people who live in our city? Does it bring into the equation people who live in Muslim countries? Or Buddhist countries? Right? I just want you to get this. You can be honest that this is the Bible. This is what it says. He will convict the world, right? So he's going to convict. We, we know two things. He's going to convict, and it's going to be the world. But what's he going to convict the world of? He's going to convict them of sin. Okay, so we need, we need to explain that. But he's going to convict them of righteousness and of Judgment. So here's the problem. If by convicting us of sin, it means pointing out our unrighteousness, then he can't convict us of righteousness. He has to say, if he convicts the world of sin, he has to convict it of being unrighteous, and therefore he has to convict it as being judged. Right? See where we're going? But if we read correctly what's said here, and we tie that with Romans 1.17, that in the gospel, a righteousness is revealed, which is by faith from first to last, we find the Holy Spirit comes as the judge over the world on behalf of Jesus, because Jesus said that I have been given the power to judge from my Father. My Father has told me I'm empowered to judge. Jesus now passes that judgment over to the Holy Spirit. He says when he comes, he is going to declare my judgment. And so you may not know what a gavel is. It's not a bobbly hat that goes on your head, okay? Thinking, oh, a gavel. Uh, A gavel is that wooden mallet that sits on a wooden block on the judge's bench in the courthouse, okay? And it's the thing that he brings everything to order with. This court is now in session, clonk. That means there's authority that says we're in session. But the gavel is also what the judge brings down when he passes sentence. Why does he pass sentence? Because a conviction has been reached. And that conviction is now being declared. So I want you to understand the point Jesus is making here. The Holy Spirit comes... He sits as judge over you and I on behalf of Jesus who's been given authority by the Father and he brings down the gavel, the mallet and he declares the conviction. You have been convicted. You are guilty and you have been convicted righteous. So the Holy Spirit, you can argue with him if you wish but the Holy Spirit of God on behalf of Jesus has convicted you having heard all the evidence having taken all the testimony about you and from you and around you, having taken every bit of information possible, and he has pronounced a verdict. And that verdict says you are convicted righteous. 
Every one of you in here tonight, by God the Holy Spirit, has been convicted righteous. God says, you are righteous. You say, but how can I be righteous? And so here's the problem. For centuries, the church has kept lodging an appeal with God to overturn the conviction that he declared by the Holy Spirit that day that Jesus spoke to John. You've got to overturn this verdict, God. This is a wicked world. You've got to overturn this verdict. These are sinful people. You've got to overturn this verdict. I know what I'm like. I don't deserve this. You have to overturn your verdict. And every time that goes to the court of heaven, God has denied it and rejected it and he's longing for us to stop appealing the sentence that he has declared over our lives, which God says, here's the starting point for you. All the evidence is in. I make my judgment. I convict you righteous. You are righteous in here tonight. As Manning says, it's not an issue of who you should be, because you may never be who you should be. He loves you as you are, and he's convicted you righteous as you are. So, what does this mean then? He will convict the world of sin. Well, he explains in verse 9, he said, because men do not believe in me. The only sin that will keep you apart from this is refusing to believe that you have been convicted as a righteous person. God cannot help you if you insist on insisting to him, I am not righteous. When you throw back his judgment in his face that he has made in full knowledge of who you are and say, oh, I'm just unworthy and I'm unrighteous. And God says, who told you that? Because the Holy Spirit didn't tell you that. He doesn't come to convict you of the sin of unrighteousness. He comes to convict you of your unbelief that he has said righteous because of what I've done in my son. So he convicts us of the sin that we don't believe in him, that we don't believe that what he did was enough to make you righteous. That's what the cross is about. It was enough to make you righteous. Everything that ever needed to be paid for anything was dealt with at the cross. And when Jesus said it's finished, that was the final installment on any indebtedness that humanity would ever have from its foundation to its end. God said the last installment has been paid, the last fine has been paid, the last penalty has been paid. What Jesus offered is good enough for everyone, for all time, in all nations, of all beliefs, it's good enough, right? So the sin is not to believe that that's it. He said, and in regard to righteousness, I'm going to my Father where you see me no longer. Very simply what that means, that if, if Jesus wasn't righteous, he could not have ascended to be with his Father in heaven, but he's now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, Basic, without going deep theology, what that means is what he did at the cross worked, yeah. right? It did what it says on the tin, right? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It did what it says on the tin. So because he sat at the Father, we know that righteousness has been accomplished and that it comes through him. And he says in regard to judgment, not because you're judged, but because the prince of this world is judged and now stands condemned. You are not under condemnation from God tonight. It's the devil who accuses you as under condemnation. And every time he stands before God and points at you, God simply points at Jesus and says, I've already convicted them. And you can't have double jeopardy if you know what that means. You've already been convicted of righteousness. We have been convicted righteous. 
So don't appeal the sentence. So what's the true gospel? See, where your gospel ends up will be determined by how you divide this word of truth, how you divide these things that we've just looked at. I believe that John summarized all this up beautifully. I'll say this very quickly. John's gospel starts with the same words that Genesis 1 starts, in the beginning. John has a point in this. He's wanting to tell you what's been in place from the beginning. Genesis 1 says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and runs us through all the stuff about darkness and emptiness and void and lily. John starts by saying in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. It sounds very poetic, but he says, but the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was saying that the Jesus that we experience, born in the flesh in Bethlehem, the one who died on the cross and rose again, was with the Father in the beginning before anything was ever created. Nothing was created without him, but he was involved in everything that was created. And then John says this, he, was, he, 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 he became flesh dwelled among us. We've seen the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now you've got to get John's point here. Jesus is full of grace and truth. That sounds like good news, doesn't it? But from when is Jesus full of grace and truth? In the beginning was the word. So in the beginning, before you were a sparkle in God's eye, before you were ever created, before Adam ever sinned, before ever sin entered into this world, the word was full of grace and truth from the beginning. Now here's the problem. If your gospel is rooted in unrighteousness, God has to send Jesus as a thought of how we're going to resolve the problem. So he just becomes a problem fixer. And so when Jesus turns up, grace and truth enters our world. I beg to differ. Grace and truth was in our world from before we were ever created. It started with grace and truth. It started with his righteousness. It continues with his righteousness. And God is trying to get something through to you to say it has not changed. He is still full of grace and truth. And he's come to convict you of righteousness because the gospel is a righteousness that is revealed. It says, the law came, was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through, not began with, right? Came through Jesus Christ. It flowed to you and me today. See, what I have to say to you as I close is that our image of God has so often been distorted by our own human thinking and, 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 and by the knowledge that we've picked up and by what others have said to us and and, and particularly by then trying to pass that through the filter of what we think Christianity is or what we think the church is. And so as Brennan said, quoting Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, we begin to create God in our image, just like God created us in his. And then we finish up with this supreme ruler who judges over all things, whose primary concern is the unrighteousness of the world and how he can fix it. But you see, when you understand this, you realize that that is not God's primary concern. God's primary concern is that you have a revelation of the righteousness that he has convicted you of. That your starting point is not how bad I am, therefore I must get better. 
but how good God has made me to be and therefore I must change out of that goodness that he's bestowed upon my life. And so I want to finish by saying this, sin can't condemn us. But just as important, our not sinning can't save us. You see, most, most expressions of our Christian faith would say that, well, you know, if because of Jesus sin can't condemn us, we, we, we still somehow think that not sinning can save us. But the truth is sin can't condemn us if we're convicted righteous. And just as important, our non-sinning cannot save us either. And so, I want to finish with the verse and one statement. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, it says, It is because of him, of God, that you're in Christ Jesus, who's become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Jesus is the wisdom of God. God had to have a very wise way to resolve the conflict that we have, which is humanity, with all our pains, our difficulties, our grace, our disgrace, our dysfunctionality, our distorted love, all that stuff. Jesus doesn't reveal the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. For this reason, he says, he is our righteousness. He is our holiness. He is our redemption. So in Jesus, that's my redemption. That's my holiness. That's my righteousness. It is disconnected from my behavior, except for one behavior, which is to believe that he succeeded in what he did and has convicted me righteous. And I accept that and my life begins to express his life from that very moment. And that's the point of the gospel. So I finish with another Brennan Manning quote. You will not be measured by the good or bad you do. I catch that. You will not be measured by the good or the bad that you do, but by the grace you accept. My challenge to you tonight is can you and will you accept the grace that has been bestowed upon you by a divine declaration that goes through the ages for all eternity on which the gavel of the courtroom of heaven has come down and convicted you righteous. Can you accept it? Can you receive it? Can you, in spite of your own inner being, saying, but I must have to do something more than that, but I know what I'm like. I know my weaknesses. Can you, in spite of that, Understand, you're not going to be measured by the good you do by saying, oh, I'm really terrible, I'm really awful, I'm really sinful, I do this, 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 and this. You're not going to be measured by that. All the bad you do, well, I just feel terrible because I've done this and this. But you'll be measured by the grace that you accept. How many of you think it's a good idea in the courtroom when the judge convicts you to accept his conviction? I invite you tonight to accept the conviction that God has pronounced over you. Some of you have done awfully good things and they have been awful in their goodness because it sent you down a track of thinking you can do it. Some of you have done awfully bad things that you still struggle with, you still wrestle with, just like Brennan with his alcoholism. But if you let them come to the fore, then your sin will be that you will not accept the conviction. But I want you tonight to accept that you have been convicted righteous.
that you can never be more righteous than you are this moment. That in the sight and the eyes of an holy God, you are pronounced not only righteous but holy. That you are justified and just. You stand before him in right relationship and also you stand before him as a person who has right standing. The Bible says we could come with boldness and confidence and liberty. Now, some of you may say, but how does that address the weaknesses and the failings of our humanity? That's an entirely different story to the gospel. And the truth is what God has declared over us never changes regardless of the good or the bad. It does not change. What I'm bringing you today is just to get a hold of them and willing to accept the point of the gospel and the conviction that God has brought upon you. I want you to be free from the condemnation of life and sin, of the judgments that often we bring on ourselves that God is saying, no, no, no. Let the burden lift off your shoulders. I've lifted the burden in Jesus. When he died and gave his life, that was the end of it. Why are you still carrying on as though that was not the end? It is finished. And God said, now I want me and you to walk in a direction, okay? Doesn't say I want you to do this to get to heaven. It says I want you to do this so me and you can walk in a direction. And for all of you, whatever your hang-ups, your issues, your difficulties, your addictions, your afflictions, your compulsions, I guarantee you that the Father of Jesus, the Abba of Jesus, will come. And the Bible says he'll be closer than a brother. He'll be your best friend. He'll be your dad to lead you into what he calls life. In him is life. I want you to receive that. So we're just going to pray right now. I could ask you to stand. I could ask you to put up your hand. I could ask you to do a lot of things, but I'm not going to. Um, What happens in your heart is what's important tonight. And what I'm inviting you to do is, is, is to do the only appropriate response, which is gratefulness, thankfulness, okay? Here's, here's what you do in a situation like this. You shut up, you listen, you receive, and you say, thank you. If you would do that for me, thank you. If you declared me righteous, thank you. Imagine if you were in in court for the vilest of offences and the judge convicted you righteous and said you're free to go. I don't think you'd argue too much. I think you'd say, thank you, thank you, Your Honour. Thank you so much. Thank you, I'm out of here. The only appropriate response to a true understanding of the gospel is thankfulness. Thankfulness. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I invite you tonight to say to the Father of Jesus, the God of creation, the sublime one, to say to him, thank you. Thank you for my conviction. Thank you for the righteousness that is mine. Thank you that this is my beginning point in life. Thank you that there is no condemnation upon me. Thank you that I am not gonna sin because I believe that you actually accomplished that. Thank you that all judgment has gone on to the one who accuses me and not on to me. Thank you that I'm a free man tonight. Thank you that I'm a free woman. Thank you that your I wills have touched my life, not your you musts. I receive your I wills. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for the life of God in me. Thank you for the kingdom of heaven in me. Thank you for the revelation of righteousness 
in me. Thank you for the faith that is now in me. Thank you that I am a new creation because of this revelation in Jesus' name. Let it settle in your spirit. Free yourself because God's freed you and begin to walk the direction now that the same Holy Spirit will lead you in and it says he will only ever lead you into life and not death. So choose that life tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. We're done. That's the point of the gospel.